Live Creative Now, Episode 135. Welcome to Live Creative Now with Melissa Dinwiddie, a weekly podcast to inspire you to create your art and share your work. Because that's how you will change the world. Hello, I am Melissa Dinwiddie, Passion Fluorolite Artist, Happiness Catalyst, and Creativity Instigator, and author of The Creative Sandbox Way, which you can find at an Amazon near you, here to address all your questions about living a full-color creative life. Whether you think of yourself as not artistic, not creative, which is a lie, or you think of yourself as an artist, as a creative of any kind, or anything in between, no matter how you define yourself. Feeding your creative hungers makes you feel more alive. It's how you change your life, and it's how you change the world, because that's how it works. Change your life, and the world changes. It is a conversation week, an interview week. I have sort of alternate between conversations and monologues, and this week I am having a conversation, or rather I'm sharing a conversation that I had a while back with Kat Coppett of Coppett. That is the name of her company. Kat Coppett is a, a, a facilitator, a the CEO of a company that uses, among other things, applied improvisation. And I met Kat at the Applied Improvisation Network World Conference in August, but I've actually been a fan of hers for a long time because I own a book that is kind of a Bible in the world of applied improvisation. And Kat is the author of that book. And you'll hear us talk about the book and why she hates the title. <laughs> we had quite a little conversation about that. Uh, but I was thrilled to get a chance to meet Kat at the conference in August. And turns out we didn't talk about this in the conversation. But turns out that Kat grew up in the same town that I grew up in. So we never met each other, but we were just a couple of years apart. She went to the, uh, the 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 private school down the street from the school where the high school that I went to, and we probably passed each other in the like the shopping center or something <laughs> when we were growing up, and we had no idea. Anyway, I'm totally thrilled to get a chance to share Kat with you. She's really an amazing person, and. What I'm most excited to do these days is bring people, well, I'm always interested to bring people to you who are doing really interesting things with creativity and play. And I'm particularly intrigued by people who are doing cool things with creativity and play in in the organizational realm. And that's one of the things that Kat is doing. And so we talked about how she got into that, which was a very not typical manner. She actually comes from the world of theater, as you will hear her talk about. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Kat Coppett. Enjoy. Let's start with improv, because that's the realm that I know you from. How did you yeah. get started with improv? I got serendipitously started with improv um, because I was not seeking it out. And I was, um, we were talking about people who don't think of themselves as creative, the last thing I would have thought of myself as was an improviser, certainly not a comedic improviser. I did not think of myself as funny. So I was an actor, a classically trained, serious actor. And 
And um, I was working in a company called the Manhattan Stage Company, which had a lot of people in it, including a guy named Aaron Sorkin that you may have heard of. He had some minor success later on. Um, and uh, having having sort of failed out of conservatory training because my teachers, uh, I, I hid the fact that I failed out of it, right? Like I, I sort of failed out of acting school, but went on to be a professional actor. So nobody really knew I failed out of it, you know, like failed, <laughs> um, you know, and got my equity card and was working as an actor, but had this sort of dark shadow, which was a whole bunch of acting teachers who told me that they said very stupid things to me, like you're too smart to be an actor or stop thinking. What they meant was you're censoring yourself, you're blocking yourself, you're not trusting your impulses, you're letting your rational, critical voices get in your way. But they didn't know how to help me get unblocked. They just knew how to reprimand me for being blocked. Um, Anyway, so I was in this theater company and serendipitously, one of the producer's mother was a voice teacher who had a student named Terry Summer, who was working with a company in New York called Chicago City Limits, which was one of the premier improv companies at the time. And she came and did an improv workshop with us. And uh, she sort of pointed at me and said, oh, you're pretty good at this, which was this sort of affirmation I needed to hear after feeling like I was bad at it. What she meant really was just, I was good at following the rules she was given. <laughs> <laughs> That's really all she meant. I wasn't especially funny or anything. Um, and what I, what, what I was actually attracted to an improv strangely for an improviser, maybe not strange at all was there were rules for being spontaneous <laughs> and getting out of my own way <laughs> and being right, right. Like someone was giving me a roadmap for learning how to trust my impulses and being spontaneous and accessing my non-structured brain, if that even makes sense, right? Uh, so that's how I got into improv. And um, within a year or two, I was almost exclusively spending my time moving chairs and selling candy bars at Chicago Student Limits and taking classes there. and. Um, turning my attention to the world of improv and away from trying to get work as a scripted actor. The other thing I loved about improv was, you know, in the world of scripted theater, you're always trying to, it's other people are the gatekeepers about who you can be and what role you're right for and right. what you can play. And um, I was never going to be the most beautiful or whatever. So in improv, I could be the cute one or the beautiful one or the, you know, tall one or the man or whatever I wanted to be. And I, and this is a long and circuitous answer, but the other thing I liked about improv was ultimately I realized that all of the things that were, in addition to helping me get around the deficits of my logical and rational brain, I also got to use the strengths of my writer and director brain as mm. an improviser. And I really ultimately realized that I was as much a writer and a director as I was an actor. And so it let me open up those parts of my creative space. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. And what you can't see, because people listening are, of course, are only hearing, they're not seeing us, but we are seeing each other because we're doing this yes. on Skype with video. And off to my right, I have the poster of my 10 guideposts from my creative sandbox way. Mm. And I in order to free myself from 10 years of creative stuckness, I had to create rules, I had to create a structure, <laughs> in order to free myself of perfectionist Gorgeous. paralysis. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so everything that you just talked about was just such it was I resonated with it so much. Oh. And I also love that about improv. That's one of the some of the things that you, you shared just now, the ability to be anything 
to be the ingenue or to be the man or to be the short one or the tall one or the fat one or the skinny one or whatever. You don't have to worry about being typecast because of the body that you have. You can have anybody in improv and you get to write and direct and script and act. Yep. You're not limited to one role the way that you are as a scripted actor. That's right. And you're doing all three of those things at the same time. At the same time. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's amazing. So that's how you got started in improv, in performance improv. Mm -hmm. So how did you get started taking improv into the world of business? Because you have this successful business cop it named after you. (laughs) Yeah. After, after I went through like six or seven trying to be really creative and clever coming up with names, I just gave up. I like, I had lots of different iterations of the business that had good names. And finally I was just like, fine, it's cop it. (laughs) I'm not the only one who goes through naming struggles. By that time it was like, I had established some kind of reputation for myself and people knew who I was and nobody ever knew the names of my businesses because there were like too many of them and nobody <laughs> knew what they were. And so I was just like, fine, cop it. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Yeah. So how did Pretty that easy. start? Um, well, so I started improvising and I was improvising and strangely enough, that wasn't completely paying the bills. <laughs> Oh, what a surprise. Imagine that. <laughs> and uh, so I, w- I was still being an actor and I was improvising. And my day job was teaching English as a second language to Russian immigrants. And eventually I became a trainer of t- teachers in that program and then a supervisor. So on the side, I started and I had a mentor there who sort of tagged me and said, oh, come do these people skills workshops with me at Cornell because he kind of liked me in his supervisory training courses that he was doing for us and took me under his wing. So sort of on the side, I was getting a little bit of taste of management and people skills and trainer training and organizational development. And kind you of were in your 20s? In my mid-20s. Okay. Without really paying a lot of attention to it. But mm-hmm. I was getting some skills around teaching and around organizational development. And beca- and and I started teaching improv class with Theater Sports in New York, which was the company I was working with at the time. And my improv students started coming to class and saying things like, wow, you know, this improv stuff would be really good for my boss. I wish he knew how to yes and the fundamental improv principle or wow, if only my team at work knew how to collaborate and make our, each other look good the way the, my peers in this class are collaborating, that would be great. You guys should come and do improv workshops in business. This is like in the early mid nineties. Right. And what I now know is that, or what I, found out at the time was there were a couple of people doing a little bit of this work. People like Sue Walden and Robert Lowe had written a book, Improvisation Inc., which I quickly found. And he later found this email that I had written to him on from my AOL account. So this is <laughs> um, and he produced it for me years later when we met, which was so sweet. Um, but but mostly it was just an insane idea. And I, with my very rational left brain was like, okay, that sounds a little crazy to me. But on the other hand, I was a starving actor and, you know, corporations have money and I like teaching improv. So I was like, okay, what the heck? So it wasn't like I had some brilliant vision. Other people did, but I did not. I was not one of those people who was like, this would be great in organizations. I actually had very little organizational experience, but because I had a little bit of it, I was the person inside our improv company who started to design these programs and bring them into businesses. And very quickly I said, if I'm going to do this, I don't want to be selling snake oil. I don't want to be making it up. And I don't want the story to be because I actually valued my left brain and my rational thought. I don't want the story to be, um, 
I'm a starving actor doing this to make money because corporations have money and I'm a starving actor. And I don't want to go in and be the kind of wacky, touchy feely creative coming in and doing, you know, Oh, are we going to sing Kumbaya? You know, like I, I didn't want to be that person. I don't know. I wasn't courageous enough or something to be that person. So, uh, so I went back to Columbia and got a master's in organizational psychology mostly to test if there was any value in what I had started to do and what people were asking me to do. That was really why I went. And um, I ended up learning a huge amount and loving that program and loving the content. And um, there's much more to say about that. But what I realized within, I don't know, three weeks of being in this program which was really my first foray as an adult outside of the world of the theater and being surrounded mostly just by creatives um, was my revelation was that most people were starved for this thing that we took for granted, which was simply to be seen and heard and to express themselves and that they were just starving for it and they never got a chance to do it. And it was like manna from heaven. And, and that was my first step into really valuing the work and wanting to spread it in the world and really completely flipping from being an actor and wanting to be an actor to wanting to evangelize about this work in the world and seeing it applied in the world. Um, because I didn't, I didn't understand how privileged we were as artists and how unique the world of the theater was in terms of uh, what, what was valued and the opportunity that people had to explore their inner lives and express their creativity and be connected in that way compared to the way most people live their lives. Wow. Oh my God. It's so fascinating. What year what years were you in the master's program? Like 95 to 97 or okay. so. Okay. Okay. A little bit later than I, I was in a master's of social science program in England in 92 to 93. It was just a one year program. And what you just described of feeling so disconnected and so starved, that was my experience. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was creative. So this was long before yeah. I ever thought of myself as a creative being. And I was there th- thinking that I was en route to a PhD program. I went to get this master's degree to make myself desirable as a PhD candidate. Then I ended yeah. up never applying, thank God, for PhD programs. But that was that was me, was just like starving, but not realizing why I was yeah. so miserable, right? And it was because I had all this unexpressed creativity inside of me, just like dying, dying inside. That was me. And yeah. here you were going to get this master's so that you could help other people you yeah. know, express themselves. And- and I, I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. I mean, I was going to go like, well, what's the rigor behind what I'm doing? Because I don't want to just be doing fluff. And I realized like, oh, no, like there the fundamentals of like looking into each other's eyes and being willing to like say something without being terrified that if you speak your truth, people are going to shame you for it is like that, you know, and just like being honest about how you feel like, I mean, the most fundamental baseline, I am a human being and I'm standing in a room facing you being a human being, being authentic with you was something that people were never, ever, ever got to do or be rewarded for. Wow. And, um, I mean, like the one, one, or just be silly, like, and playful. I mean, you know, like that sounded very sort of serious the way I just said it. One of the moments that made me realize this is we had uh, a um, survey course where we had to do something on interviewing skills and uh, like how 
And we decided to do a sort of John Cleese type do's and don'ts thing where instead of just lecturing about like, here's what you can do legally in an interview and here are the questions you can ask legally in an interview, which was like our assignment, right? This group project. We decided we were going to do some, a little sketch where we do the sketch of like a, a bad version and then debrief with the class, <laughs> like, um, like we'll do the bad version. Then you tell us what did we do wrong? These were, I mean, they were like two minute sketches. They weren't funny. I mean, they were really not that funny. Like, you know, like, yeah. but they were a little bit silly. They were like, just not totally ridiculously dry. And people would stop me in the halls and go like, hey, you did that sketch. And they would um, remember the content. They'd go like, oh, that was that thing about how you can't ask if someone's pregnant, you know? Um, and I was like, oh course what we're doing is a value because it's so aberrant in the world wow yeah so when you decided to go get this master's mm -hmm. you mentioned that you wanted your goal really was to test mm -hmm. and to test I can't remember the the language that you used but so what was the yeah. result did did you accomplish yeah. that goal I think I did. I think I did. Like I say, so right away I realized, okay, there's something of value here just because, you know, it was the water that I was swimming in. So first of all, I realized how much we had to offer just because so much of what I took for granted didn't exist in the world, right? Like things like being present and connected and um, taking creative risks and all of those things, like how much people needed it. So I was like, okay, the other thing I realized was that there was in the world of organizational psychology and development, and this is true even more so now, what, 20 years later, it's even more, you know, it's so much more true in the literature than it ever was that the, uh, there's so much research that the, the things that people seem to need and want to be effective human beings in the world are the things that improvisers have are practicing all the times. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. What, what I realized even years later with the help of my clients is, um, what we're doing is not a metaphor, right? Human beings are improvising all the time, right? right. We are, we are performing a scene right now, you and I here right. together. Right. And, and that may not seem weird to people cause we're, you know, this is an interview. It's sort of a, performatory situation. But when I go home and have dinner with my husband tonight, or I pick up my daughter and drive her, you know, pick her up from dance and drive her home, we're going to be performing a scene together. It doesn't mean we're not being authentic. We may or may not be authentic. <laughs> um, you probably it's habitual. Most of it will be unconscious, the choices we make, but we're making performance choices. And they may be effective ones or ineffective ones. Like I say, they may be habitual or or, you know, conscious or unconscious, but we are performing all the time. And so, um, the bottom line, I realized this is the language I have for it now. I didn't write out of grad school, but what I realized was what improv improv is the gym for life, right? It's the gym for all mm. of the skills. A lot of these skills that, um, individuals and organizations are realizing they need to help two things. Really. One is help people expand their awareness of their performance choices and the impact they're having, right? So what is it that I'm doing? And is it having the impact I want it to have? So that's sort of one of the axes that we work on. And the other is, how can I expand my performance, my range of options, if you will, so that when my when the choices I'm making aren't aligned with my objectives, I can make other choices. That's so brilliant. Improv is the gym for life. Yeah. Because improvisers, right, are getting up on stage and they're co-creating in real time. They're collaborating and creating. Oh, I have a puppy. Sorry if that's a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, so... So improvisers are getting up on stage and in real time, they are making up scenes and stories, sometimes full length plays collaboratively on the spot in high stakes 
at least what feels like high stakes situations, right, in front of an audience that have paid money and said, okay, entertain me. Um, so they've developed consciously all of these principles and rules and mindsets, maybe not rules, but at least principles, mindsets, tenets, uh, and then a whole set of exercises to kind of work out um, these muscles of things like taking risks or being resilient or using what's in the moment and making something out of it, whether you like it or not, or whether it's what you were expecting or not. Um, you know, really communication, creativity, and collaboration. So any situation in which you need to create or collaborate or communicate with someone else, which are a whole lot of human situations, improv is the gym. That's such a great metaphor. I love that. I am totally stealing that and quoting you. Credit, <laughs> awesome. Crediting you. Hashtag improv is the gym. I think we might have the credit cat URL for it. Somewhere, <laughs> but we haven't put it up as a website yet. That's fantastic. So for people who aren't familiar with the term applied improv, mm -hmm. walk us through what it would feel like to be in a room with you during a training or whatever you would call it, a workshop or whatever. Yeah. So um, it can look a lot of different ways, really. What makes applied improv applied improv is simply that the objective or goal of the activity of improvising is something other than just the improv itself, right? So when we're improvising on stage, the, uh, the improv itself is the end goal, right? To do an improv scene for an audience and have them perform. When we're applying improv, we're doing applied improv, um, we're saying we're using the principles and techniques and mindsets and exercises of improvisational theater and applying them to some other setting, context, and objective. And that objective might be, it might be, there's a whole uh, movement right now that people are calling purposeless play, which I think is misleading because I think there is a purpose to purposeless play which is for people to feel free and have fun and rediscover their inner child and um, gain resiliency and all sorts of things, right? So in some ways it's semantics. But in that case, the application of the improv is to feel free and have fun and to, and to play, right? And rediscover something perhaps. Uh, often in the work we do, the application is... Um, team alignment and team building or leadership skills, skill development or um, presentation skills development, or it could be something more specific. Like we'll do a workshop on listening skills or a workshop on creative problem solving as a skill. So the, the very first thing that we need to figure out is what's the objective, right? What is it, where and what are we applying improv to? And for us at Copit, that question becomes very, very important. For, for some practitioners, it's not as important as others. For some, you say, hey, we're improvisers. This is what we do. We're going to bring it to you and show you what it is. And it's up to you to go and figure out how you're going to apply it later once we give you this, here's a gift, go decide how you want to use the cookies we gave you, right? Spread them around. Um, for us, we, it feels really important to us to start with the what's your objective? What's your performance outcome? What's your application? And then we design our improv, you know, what improv we're going to use, if in fact that's the tool, because we have all sorts of other things that we use too. Okay. So, Let's say you wanted to you um, 
you, your objective is to sell more. You have a sales force and you want them to be able to sell more of your product. And you have diagnosed when you've done some, you know, you've, you've watched your salespeople and you've noticed that they're really, really, really good at describing your awesome product and how fabulous it is. But they're not especially good at understanding the customer and connecting with the customer. And um, so they'll talk about all of these features of the product and how great these features are, but they might be talking, you know, they're trying to sell this chair and um, they're, they're talking about all the, how, how wonderful the wheels are on this great desk chair. And they go on and on about the high tech wheels that they've invented. And they don't realize that the customer they're talking to is a 95 year old man who's really worried about breaking his hip. <laughs> and he's looking for a dining room chair for his big dining room. And he doesn't <laughs> want a chair with wheels, right? So that's not actually a, a benefit to him, that feature. It's actually a terrible liability, right? He should not be, you should not be talking about the wheels of the chair. You should be talking about the nice soft cushion and the stability, right? For example, right? So they've diagnosed that they have this sales force that they want to be better at selling and the need that this sales force is they have to be better listeners. Okay. So now we'll come in and we can say, ah, well, you know what? There's some great improv techniques that are really good for building the muscle of listening skills. So we're going to do some improv activities to help exercise listening muscles. And then there's a whole series of improv games and activities that we could use to shift mindsets around listening, to exercise the skills of listening, um, and maybe even to use as frame games or sort of just a frame game is just like a game where you can slot in content to you know, where the game stays the same, but the content can be different um, to play with listening. Um, so some games we might play in that, uh, some activities, if you have a very serious client, you don't want to call them games or games if you have a more playful client, uh, might be a game where we want to change people's mindset about listening to let them remember that it's a hard thing because sometimes people think, oh, listening, that's easy. So we get four volunteers and we have one person tell a story to the second person while the other two are out of the room. And then the second person tries to repeat that story exactly. And then the third person comes in, second person repeats the story to three. And then the fourth person comes in, third person repeats it to the fourth. Fourth person repeats it out to the audience. So it's like a giant game of telephone, right? And you see how the story morphs and degrades, right? And then you can debrief with this improv word, which is offers. It's improv jargon, which just means an offer is anything that my partner says or does. And you can say, so what kinds of offers did we retain? What kinds of offers got lost? And what kinds of offers can you get better at listening for? And tease out that you know it's not just data, it's emotions and it's values and it's intention and um, and then you can do some activities about listening for those kinds of offers and building with them and yes, anding stuff like that. For example. I love it. I love it. And you happen to be the author of kind of, kind of like a Bible <laughs> in the improv world, a book called Training to Imagine, which. Isn't that a terrible title? Can I say something about the title? Please. Training, it, it's called Training to Imagine with a really, really, really long subtitle because in, 19, in 2001, when the book came out, the publisher insisted that we not put improv in the main title because it would never sell. Isn't that always how it goes? Yeah. Yeah. Just I know. to tell you how far we've come in this. Yeah. In the world of whatever. Anyway. So, I know. Yeah. It really should have improv in the title, but... Training to Imagine. Yeah. Yep. Well, it it's so brilliant because what I love about one of the one of the many things I love about your brilliant book is that at the back it, it's just a book that's just chock full of improv activities or games or whatever you want to mm. call them depending on <laughs> depending on who you're doing them with, right? And at the back are multiple appendices which, which are essentially charts so you can look up, oh, I'm looking for an activity or a game that's really good for, I don't know, exercising the muscle of listening 
let's mm-hmm. say, and you can find a whole bunch of activities that are really good for exercising that particular muscle in charts at the back. Mm-hmm. It's so freaking brilliant. So <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, so I really wanted to have a book that was useful. You know, I wanted it to be a book for, I designed it as a book for trainers so that they could use it, right? I was, I think my target audience were, was internal trainers inside organizations or, or professional trainers, organizational trainers who heard about improv and were like, can I actually use improv in my training? Instructional designers and trainers who might not be improvisers who could then use it in their work. And so I really wanted it to be useful. Um, 16 years later, I now, I now realize um, I, I just took everything I know and put it into a book and there are dozens and dozens of comp- competitors who I have now created, like little brooms <laughs> in the Sorcerer's Apprentice. <laughs> But I've decided I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, it's a sincerest form of flattery, right? <laughs> my, well, my, this is my um, and and I'm and there are a lot of people out there in the world who are doing way cooler things with all of that than I ever did. And the other thing about the book is what I tried to do for every activity was talk about a source for the activity. You know, it's impossible in the world of improv to really track who created what because they were all created collectively and simultaneously and passed around because it was an oral tradition for, you know, years and years and years and years and continued to be an oral tradition even after people wrote it down. So I just wrote a da- wrote down a lot of stuff that a lot of people were doing. I didn't create it, right? I wrote it down. Um, so when I say, like, I created all of these competitors, I didn't actually create all these competitors. They would exist anyway. Um, but it is a sort of funny thought. And when I have moments of kind of going like, Ooh, what was, you know, like the, every now and then I have a moment of going like, was that a smart thing to do? Like when, <laughs> you know, you start you hear conversations about like, should you protect your IP or like, what? that wasn't a very smart business move. And then I realized, first of all, it's completely the spirit of improv, right? That's how we work. And secondly, I, um, I realized that my, my greatest mentor in, in the world is a man named Tiagi, who you may know. If you don't go, everyone who has never heard of Tiagi, go check him out. His name is, uh, name is spelled T-H-I-A-G-I.com. And he has, is his website, Tiagi. And his name isn't Tiagi.com, but his website is. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's the godfather of interactive strategies and games for learning, of which, you know, applied improv is really just a subset. And um, he has spent his career giving away everything that he creates. You know, he has books that he sells where he puts them. But even aside from selling books, deep amounts of his content just live for free on his website or he sends them out in this free newsletter that he does. And he just, first of all, he's just this ridiculous fountain of creativity where he's just for 50 or 60 years just pours out more and he gives it away and he pours out more and he gives it away. And he's the most generous man and the most generous mentor and the most creative person. And he doesn't have to hold it tight because there's always more behind it. And so that's who I aspire to be and Mm. sort of keeps you creative, right? If you're not, if you're giving it away, then you can't, you can't rest on your laurels. You have to keep going. Yeah. That I love that little side note into my own head. <laughs> Man, it's something I really struggle with so much. I know um, Gary Hirsch, who I, I just sent an email to ask him to be on the show. So we'll see fingers yeah. crossed to see if, oh, he, sure if yes, he says too. yes. Uh, he did a, a, a keynote at the Creative Problem Solving Institute that I went to in June, uh, which was all about letting go. Yeah that this whole concept and which is what what I'd really love to talk to him about and bring him on the show to have a whole conversation about that that very issue because yeah. it's something that I I really struggle with so you're not alone 
Um, but well, I mean, it's you know, it's an inter- I, I mean, I, I'll let you talk to Gary about. It. I'm sure he's wiser than I am about it because you know, I I do feel like having said all of that, I'm I. There are a lot of artists out there who get taken advantage of and who yeah. have their stuff stolen, and you know, where other people make money off of their IP. And so, I am not advocating for that in any sense of the word. Um, and I understand that that's the sort of flip dark side of that. So. I I just, that's that caveat on what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know it's a really, it's a really tricky issue. Yeah. I wanted to ask you though, you mentioned that you, you do other things in addition to, you have other tools in addition to improv. Mm. And I'm Mm. curious about what are some of the other tools that you bring to your work? Well, I, well, first of all, you know, as I was just saying that, you know, there is a whole world of interactive strategies for learning that exist that are way broader than what we as applied improvisers do. So sometimes what is needed when you're going into an environment and teaching people to grow and learn and stretch, maybe a game from the world of improv isn't the right activity. And, um, so I have games and strategies and approaches that I've learned from Tiagi that really aren't improv games at all. They're, but they're activities. They're wonderful and useful. Uh, sometimes you need content if you're doing leadership development or presentation skills or, um, you know, whatever your content is, sometimes creative problem solving, for goodness sake, where the content isn't improv content, it's content content. Uh, And so that's why that's when and when I'm happy that I went and got a master's in organizational psychology, or why I keep myself educated in what's going on and being researched out in the world around creativity or around leadership or around communication. Um, I think it's important that, you know, in the most cliched way of saying it is, right, just because you have a hammer doesn't mean everything's a nail and it can <laughs> start to look like that. Yeah. It yeah. Would you, if you were to do it all over again, would you go back and get that master's degree again? Oh, you know, it's funny that you say that because you were saying you were on track to get a PhD and then you didn't, thank God you didn't. I did my master's, which I loved. It's probably the happiest time of one of the happiest times of my life. And at the end of the program, one of my professors, my favorite professor was like, you should stay on and get a PhD. And I was like, I can't do that. I'm way too old for that. (laughs) 26. (laughs) Now I'm like, what was I thinking? Oh my God. I think I felt like, you know, I'd already sort of failed at my first career of like being a famous actor and now I've gone back to school, right? You know, like after a break. I can't sit be a patron. <laughs> so not only would I have done it, I probably, if I had it to do over again, would stay and get a doctorate. I don't know why. Like I don't know why I say that. I, I don't know that I needed a doctorate to do my work. But I just loved I loved being in school and I loved the philosophizing and exploring of what I'm doing and um there was so much more to learn and and do. And, but if I'd done that, I probably wouldn't be doing this work explicitly either. So it's interesting to think about. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, for me, it was a completely different situation. I, I was basically in academia because I was avoiding. Uh, <laughs> and see? I did not love my master's program. I was pretty miserable. That and, sounds like it. And it was completely non-creative. I mean, writing my master's, they call it a dissertation in England, my, right? Which was yeah. much, e- it was much shorter and much easier to write than my bachelor's thesis, honors thesis, which was twice as long. So, and I I loved getting my bachelor's degree, which was why it was easy to make a decision to get a master's degree. Yeah. Because I thought I was going to love that, but it was, I was, it was one of the worst years of my life. So... <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, well, I mean, it led me to where I am now. You're just in the wrong thing, right? I mean, it it wasn't right for you. That's it. Just wasn't right for me. But I, I, I'm a learner. I'm, I'm an inveterate learner, and I'm like, you know, I love learning. So, and I might have been right. I mean, you know, I say that now. I could have stayed, but I also could have hated it, right? I mean, I did have a little bit of a sense. 
I'm not, I'm actually not a very competitive person. And I don't think I'm a very ambitious person to see like giving everything away and be like, Oh, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm actually neither of those things. And I do think that I had a sense going into a doctorate program that you needed to be both of those things. Mm, yeah. Doctoral programs from what I could see and what I you know, think I know, even looking back, although maybe it's changing now are the most negative, the most anti-improvisational places, right? It's all about being tearing down other people's ideas and shooting holes in them and, you know, being looking for mistakes and being wrong. And there's something great about that in terms of, you know, scientific rigor, but it's very, it can, I get the sense that it can be very competitive and very lonely and very negative. So I might've hated it. Yeah. Yeah. That was my experience with my master's program. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, back to fun, creative things. Yeah. You came up with a form of improv, a performance improv called Spontaneous Mm. Broadway. I did. How did that come about? Oh, I was, okay. So one of the most creative spaces I've ever been privileged to be in with some of the most creative people I've ever had the privilege to work with is a place called Freestyle Repertory Theater, formerly in uh, Theater Sports New York, uh, which still is in existence in a, in a form, although a number of those people have left. It's run by Laura Livingston and Michael Durkin in New York. Um, and they, at the time, they were a theater sports company in New York, and we were doing mostly adult theater. They're doing more and more children's theater now. But they were, they had, they had started doing a children's theater format of theater sports and other shows that they were running and doing very, very, very success, doing very successfully. But we were also um, doing very successful adult runs in New York City. And in addition to doing theater sports, they were, I think, sort of pioneers of saying, let's develop new formats. And specifically, along with Ken Adams, who created the Story Spine, which a lot of some of your improv listeners may know, uh, Pixar made famous because some improvisers brought it into Pixar and then they added it into their 30 storytelling tips. Um, Ken Ken was a genius around narrative improv and he has a book out called how to improvise a full length play. He created a format with them called play by play, which was a two act, two act improvised play, one set, no time jumps or scene changes, each improviser playing only one character. So all of the kind of safety nets of improv gone. Like you don't have any outs, which is super hard. And so he had this, um, this company of actors who are just incredibly good, way ahead of the curve on full length storytelling improv. This is happening on the West Coast a little bit with the Bats improv people and some of their spinoff groups, but very little was happening at this time, sort of early 90s, anywhere else. So he created play-by-play structure and this company. We also started to do improvised music, which wasn't happening a lot. It's happening all over the place now, but at the time, not so much, um, where we were improvising the music as well as the words all at the same time. So most of the music improv that was coming out of Second City and places like that was set music, and then you just improvise a verse or something. And on the Keith Johnstone side, people weren't doing music much at all. He didn't like it. He thought improvised music was was stupid. So he said, I've heard him say. So So at any rate, we had these skill sets. And then there was another group within the company that started to develop a character-based show. So there were all of these skills, sort of special skills in this incredibly talented group of people. And I said, okay, I want to do a show. I want to create a show that shows off all of those talents, narrative skills, ability to sing and character work, and where we can do long narrative form improv, but 
also everybody gets a chance to shine because um, people don't always, uh, you know, when you're doing a narrative, full length narrative, one of the problems is you have leads and then you have supporting players like in a real play and not everybody, you know, it's not like short form where everybody sort of gets equal time on stage. So we created this format where um, the first act is a backers audition and you pull songs, a backers audition, if you have non-theater people, is, is like where you present the musical before, you know, sort of excerpts from the musical so that for your, for your investors, potential producers, and then people decide if they want to back the musical or invest in it so that you can produce it. So it's a backers audition, and, there, and Ken originally played a character called Kip Tipling. Now we have Michael Burns, my husband, and our artistic director who plays the character called Nick Treadwell when we do it. But, you know, old sort of 1950s, 60s Broadway producer with a big cigar. And he says, typically in a backers audition, we would show you a bunch of songs from one musical. You decide if you want to back it. But I had too many choices to to choose from. So we're just going to show you one song from a bunch of different musicals. You're going to decide which musical you want to back. And we pull song titles that the audience has written when they come in. And we set up, here's the title of the musical that the song is from. We sing that song. The audience has blank checks. They vote at the end of the first act, which musical they want to see. And then the second act is that musical with sets and costumes and a reprise of the song from the first act. Oh my God, how fun. And that's fun too. That was a very long-winded answer. I'm sorry if you had more questions. (laughs) That is so fun. We're running it right now, so I'm sort of into it. Oh yeah. my God, I would love to see that. I love it. I'm in a uh, a couple of different performing performance improv groups, one of which does long form Hollywood style musicals. Yeah. 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 And what, and when I, you know, and it's really interesting to think back because it was, there were very few people doing that. Like I remember when I, I don't want to overstate it too much, but nobody was doing anything like that in New York. Oh my God, I mean, it must have blown it, people's minds. No, it, and then and then we came to, when I moved to San Francisco to BATS, I mean, these were the BATS improv and the, you know, and the people there really were some of the greatest improvisers in the world. I mean, I think, I think your audience who is improvisers will agree. And the most talented, the most skilled, and they weren't doing full-length musicals. I mean, and they had J.R.L. Brody, who's one of the great musical improvisers, you know, ever. And they're at sort of, you know, and since then they've been at the forefront of it, but it sort of needed to be cracked. Like someone needed to say like, like the four minute mile, like, you know, you guys, we can just do this. Like, there's no reason you can't sing full length songs with song structure in a narrative story, like, and dance numbers, like, let's just do it instead of being afraid of it. And, um, one of the members of that company was a guy named Sam Cohen who had studied at Penn State with Charlie Willard, who had codified um, like what the what a well-made musical should be. And he was the one who did this stuff that everybody talks about now um, with things like, you know, you should have a need song, which is often called a want song and environment songs and philosophy of life songs and change moment songs, growth moment songs. So in spontaneous Broadway, we worked on sort of what are all of those tropes and and sort of the structure of well-made musicals. So we did a lot of, again, sort of intellectual sort of work around, not that we had to get it right, but what, what are those, you know, what does it really look like? The idea being that, you know, it should be as good as a musical. We're in yeah, New York yeah. in the middle of Broadway, right? Like, how do we make it not just good, for improv, but actually good for theater. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. How cool. Oh, Kat, there's so many other things that I want to talk to you about. I know, but you asked me a question and then I talked for 20 minutes. I'm going to have to have you back because I want to ask you about Mopco, which is your performance group and how you balance that with Cop It. And I want to talk to you about your podcast, Dare to Be Human, which is your new podcast. And we still haven't talked about um, something cool. Did you bring something cool? I did, but it's not that cool. So you can well, but, wait. Okay. No, but I can bring it. Well, you know, I was thinking about like all sorts of cool things and what are the like, 
how can I be really cool by having like the coolest cool thing for everybody? <laughs> and then I was like, okay, the thing that is actually really delighting me, like for real is, um, I have this new puppy who's been sitting on my lap the whole time ah. and <laughs> he's cool. He, he is very cool. That's not my cool thing, but he is very cool. I'll let you see him. Oh, even he's, though you're so cute. he's very, very cute. Um, and, um, I have these consultant pals uh, and I brought them with me to an offsite that they invited me to. And they gave us a basket of stuff. And one of the things in the basket was a little canister of poop bags that fasten onto his leash. Oh, cool. So every, so I'm never looking for a bag. They're just on his leash. It's like a little plastic, you know, tube. And then they, you know, the bags roll out. You just like pull out a little bag and it's always there and you just roll it up and it's a little bag. And then the next one is always there. That and is that is so my cool handy. thing. Do you happen to know the name of that thing? Oh, isn't that terrible? It, you know, when they packed it all in a basket, so I don't, but I can give it to you for your website. Yeah. When you can find I do that, that yeah, yeah, send it to me and I'll I'm put sorry. it in the show notes. Isn't that's, that bad? I don't have the name of it. I should have looked it up for you. Do you? I, yeah. yeah, no, f- when you Did find I pause it, right now and look for it. No, so no, no, no. Just say it out loud. Okay. <laughs> just find it and I'll put it in the show notes. So anybody who's listening can just go to is, the show does notes. Does that count as a cool thing? Yes. A that canister totally, of poop bags. That totally counts as a cool thing. That <laughs> <laughs> just totally counts. Okay. <laughs> and it's perfectly equivalent to my something cool this week because my something cool is. And I don't, I didn't bring it up here to show you, but you know, nobody else is going to be able to see it anyway, because they're just listening on audio. My something cool this week is a grater. It's by, it's just a grater. Awesome. <laughs> it's a cheese grater. You know, you know, those square cheese graters that you always yeah. get, you know, you get gra- your knuckles, you get, you get your knuckle. Well, this one isn't going to help you from getting your knuckles, oh. but you can never clean them. Oh, yeah. You know, because it's you, on the inside. It's on the inside. Well, this one, it it's two pieces <gasps> and it pops you open, open it. and it and it you, you can pull it apart into two separate pieces. So it's super easy to clean and it pops open so you can stand it up on a plate or on your counter and you can grate. So it stands up just like those square ones like a little teepee, but then you can separate it and you can wash it super easily. And I just Brilliant. love it. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. I just love our new grater. And it has Yay. a big grating, you know, big size grating on one side and smaller size. Gr- I don't know how to articulate that smaller yeah. size grating on the other side. That's right. Big so one's a little one. there you go. That's my something cool for this week. <laughs> this was so delightful oh my gosh Kat I am definitely going to have to ca- have you back another time because I, I have so many it. more things I want to talk to you about but now this that was... you know how long-winded I am oh well we are kindred spirits because I am exactly the same way <laughs> thank you so much this has been so incredibly fun and thank you for sharing all your wisdom and all your fun stories thank you for having me that's it that's a wrap i hope you enjoyed my conversation with kat coppett let me know if you resonated the show notes are over at livecreativenow.com slash 135 because this is episode 135 um You can check out more of Kat's work at coppet.com. That's K-O-P-P-E-T-T dot com. And you can check out Kat's theater company, Mopco, at mopco.org. That's M-O-P-C-O dot org. And you can check out Kat's new podcast at daretobehumanpodcast.com. The something cools that we shared are the Cat uh, shared the ox gourd dog poop bags with clip-on leash dispenser, and I shared uh, there's a link to that 
in the show notes, and I shared the OXO Good Grips Two-Fold Grater, and there is also a link to that in the show notes. So again, that is it. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, if you're getting value out of this podcast, I would love it if you would share it with a friend. And I would be super appreciative if you would take a moment, hop on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. That is not just for me, although I would totally love it. But really, the reason is because you're changing the world when you leave a rating and review because that is how other people find the show. Podcasts with more ratings and reviews pop up higher in the search results when people are looking for new podcasts to listen to. So the more ratings and reviews this podcast gets, the more likely it will be that somebody else will find it. So you would be making a big difference for somebody else by leaving a rating and review. If you need help with that, you can go to livecreativenow.com slash iTunes dash review, and you'll find some uh, step-by-step instructions for how to leave a review over on iTunes. Also, one more thing, if you email me to let me know that you left a review and let me know how the podcast has made a difference in your own life, that's how you can apply to be considered for the listener spotlight. Every so often, I pick a listener to be featured in one of these conversations. And that's the application process. Leave an iTunes review, email me to let me know you left it, let me know how the podcast has made a difference in your own life. And if I pick you, we will have a really fun, super relaxed conversation. And you'll get to be featured on the podcast. Super cool. That is it. Until next time. Thanks again for joining me. And go get creating. Subscribe at livecreativenow.com.